To be is to be perceived. George Barclay Hey guys, and welcome to Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. As always, I'm Credo. And I'm Glaucon. And on the show, our goal is simple. We want to take you on our journey from place to place, from era to era, to really put our ideas about the world and about ourselves to the test. And we hope by doing so, it will bring us closer to the truth, because it really does matter how we view the world. A quick disclaimer, the locations, topics, and ideas are solely for educational purposes and do not reflect in any way, sort, or kind the views of the hosts themselves. And with that, let's get on with the show. All right, so tonight we're doing episode eight, and we're going to be talking about Plato's theory of forms to some extent but we're really going to focus on the allegory of the cave. But to understand Plato's allegory of the cave, we need to talk about forms a little bit, and we need to talk about the form of the good. So the theory of forms, you know, has been discussed in a wide range of ways, and there are lots of different theories about what it amounts to. There are lots of people who criticize the idea of forms, including Aristotle. So the criticisms began pretty soon after Plato came up with the idea, I'm sure. And it's not so clear that Plato really originated the idea because it does seem to have roots in the Pythagorean view of things. Because the Pythagoreans thought that, you know, math, for example, was the most real thing or some very real thing, maybe not the most real thing, but a real thing, and that the whole world could be understood in terms of something like math or logic or reason, right? And that's a view that Plato shares with the Pythagoreans. And sometimes people divide all of philosophy up and they say, you know, on one hand you have the empiricists who think that knowledge comes from the world. And on the other hand, you have the rationalists who think that we have access to some kind of deeper knowledge inside of us. Or the rationalists can be thought of as people that think that through reason, I can understand the nature of reality. Then you have people that kind of combine these two things, and that's another group of philosophers. And then obviously you have a whole new batch of people with postmodern thought. But that's really born out of a long conversation that's been going on throughout time about the nature of knowledge and what kind of knowledge humans can have. And what Plato thinks and Socrates thinks is that there's a kind of knowledge inside of us that we have access to. An example is going to be mathematical knowledge, right? And so Socrates, at one point, shows that a person with no education can be taught relatively quickly how to produce new mathematical knowledge that wasn't taught to them, that comes purely from them reasoning about things or thinking about things. And that shows that they have access to, some, in some sense, they have access to truth inside of them. Now, the idea of, of the forms is that we have something like mathematical or rational or logical principles that exist in reality, and they're actually more real than the things that we see in the world that are arising and passing away. And so what I mean by that is that we can see a tree in our yard. It seems very real. It seems very tangible. It seems much more real 
than a squared plus b squared equals c squared, the Pythagorean theorem. It seems much more real than that because that's just an idea in my mind, that this tree is this tangible real thing out here in the yard. The tree, though, will pass away and disappear from the earth. And it has not always been there. It grew from a seed and turned into a tree. So there was a time when the tree did not exist, and there will be a time to follow when the tree no longer exists. And the idea, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, is always going to exist, always has existed, and always will exist. It's a mathematical truth that is outside of time, and it's not negotiable. It's a fixed thing. So that kind of gives us some idea of what Plato has in mind when he's talking about the forms. He's talking about something like the Pythagorean theorem that doesn't change. It exists outside of time. It's timeless. It's perfect. And those kinds of qualities in Plato's mind and many other philosophers' minds mean that it's more real than a tree, which, although seeming very real to us at the time, is going to be gone at some point and no longer there. So these mathematical, rational principles, these absolute truths are the forms. And forms exist in a hierarchy. And at the very top of the hierarchy is the form of the good for Plato. And we'll talk about that in a second. But one thing I want to say about that idea, the form of the good and forms in general by analogy, is if we think about geometry, Geometry starts with some very basic axioms, and then using those axioms, deductively derives all of the other geometric knowledge that we have. And that's done by Euclid, right, and, and other people. We can look at geometry, and we notice that it starts with some very basic principles, first principles, and then we derive all of these other axioms and theories and ideas. And so... That is the kind of model that Plato has for the form of the good. The form of the good is the most basic, simple, primary axiom from which all other things can be derived. It's the first principle. All other knowledge that is actually true or actually real is contained within that axiom. And that's kind of the idea that, analogous to geometry, we actually have already all the knowledge of geometry contained in the very first axioms that everything else can be derived from. So in some sense, the knowledge is already contained in those axioms because it can be derived from those axioms. And that is the view that I think Plato has about the form of the good, that all true, rational, real knowledge is already in the form of the good. Now, we need to say a few more things to kind of help these ideas hang together. And that is... That the form of the good is, as we said, true. It's absolute truth. It's maximally real. And it is perfectly good and the most beautiful thing. So it is true, good, beautiful, and real. Maximally real. So if you want to know what is actually true and what's actually real, it's the form of the good. And all knowledge that we have to the extent that it's true is participating in the form of the good and all human knowledge exists on a continuum from false opinion to absolute truth and so when we have an idea it's going to fall on that continuum somewhere and the more true my idea is the closer it is to the form of the good the less true that my idea is the further away it is from the form of the good there is going to be a bunch of 
gray space in between there. And that's going to be the realm of opinions. And that's where most people lie. And that's where most people's knowledge lies, is in the realm of opinion. These are going to be helpful ideas when we look at the allegory of the cave. Great overview there. Just a quick question, um, just for some listeners that might be wondering, do you think that the form of the good as an idea, it seems it's difficult to really attain it as well as ascertain it in a way that we know exactly what it is. Do you think that that causes some difficulty for people to accept that it even exists at all? Maybe people are skeptical. What do you, what do you have to say about that? No, absolutely. That is absolutely true. And so this is an old problem and it's a problem for human beings just as much as it is a problem for philosophers. <laughs> and that is the idea that it's difficult to understand how we can have knowledge. And the reason why I say that is that what the empiricist philosophers or thinkers that believe we start with knowledge from experience are going to argue is that we start with knowledge from experience. And then given that knowledge from experience, we derive principles. And the more we do that, the closer we get to the most basic principles, which is, in a sense, how science sometimes works. The other argument is going to be that, no, you have to figure out what the first principles are first, and then you have to derive deductively the knowledge out of those. And that's kind of like what we were talking about with geometry as our model. And so both of these ways of getting knowledge have their problems. Uh, it's difficult, as you said, to understand what a first principle would be or how to even conceive of that, right? Is it even possible for us to conceive of perfection? And uh, these kinds of problems and these kinds of worries are going to come up again when we talk about the ontological argument, which is a, an argument for the existence of God, which is actually related to this stuff about the form of the good, because it, it seems like it's maybe not based on the idea, but it's certainly philosophically connected to the idea. And there is a kind of problem which Plato recognizes, right? And Aristotle recognizes. And that is whether or not we argue from or towards first principles. And so the idea is that you're only, and this comes up in the allegory of the cave, that you're only going to actually see the truth and the form of the good with effort and also with courage. And this goes back to some of the things we've talked about with the philosopher and the role of courage in philosophy. So it's not going to be the kind of thing that you're going to easily have access to. It's going to require a lot of effort. And so in that sense, it's actually similar to the idea of enlightenment in Buddhism, where, you know, you may or may not believe in enlightenment, but if you're going to attain it, it's going to take a whole lot of work if it does exist. <laughs> Right? And so, so I think it's kind of an analogous thing here with the form of the good. There are reasons to think that the form of the good exists. And so we can talk about those a little bit. For example, we've talked about this already a few times, and that is the idea that the good life allows a person to maximally flourish as a person, to maximally do well as a person. And if I am living a bad life, I'm basically destroying myself, dissolving myself. Now, this idea requires us to think about the good life, and it requires us to think that there is something true about what kind of a life would be a good life. And now that means that the closer I live my life in line with what's true about an actual good life, the better off I do as a person, the more I flourish as a person, the better things go for me, and I'm more healthy psychologically, physically, spiritually, mentally. If, on the other hand, I have false ideas about what the good life is. And I think that 
happiness is to be found in some sort of a negative and false way, which would be, you know, any number of things. I could be stealing stuff to buy drugs and think that that's the way for me to be maximally happy, but then that turns out to not be the case and I end up destroying myself and destroying people around me. The reason why I bring this up in relation to the form of the good is that what we realize when we start thinking about that picture, the picture of human flourishing and the true and the good, is that the person that is living their life in accordance with what is true, they're a person that we would call good, and they're also the person that's maximally real in the sense that they're maximally healthy. They're more healthy than other people. They're more fit They have a better constitution, spiritually, mentally, physically, and otherwise. And that's like the person who is living on the mean for Aristotle in terms of virtue. That person on the mean is kind of maximally real. They're more real than other people because people that are living dissolute lives and are, you know, in in the Christian way of thinking of things, they're living a sinful life. That kind of a person is destroying themselves, and so they're actually less real. To be less healthy is to be less actual, less real. You're closer to death, which is to say, not real anymore at all, right? So to the extent that a person is healthy and is good, they are participating more in the form of the good, right? And to the extent that they're not participating in the form of the good, they're living their lives by believing false things to be true, And by doing that, they're kind of missing the mark of the form of the good, and they're dissolving themselves or disintegrating, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And clearly, this is a complex idea even now, right? I mean, it almost seems counterintuitive to say that what is more real is, you know, less physical, right? It's less sensible in that sense. We normally associate realness with being able to touch or feel or experience. And so it's it's an interesting idea that knowledge right, exists as long as someone is willing to or able to believe it in some ways, right? So it actually doesn't depend on anything else for existence. Like you said, it's outside of time. Plato obviously is undergoing quite the experiment here to set up the Republic, to try and define justice. How does he set up this idea about presenting this problem of knowledge and this opinion versus truth? Right, it's a great question, you know, and it is certainly a a complicated idea. And Um, It is a strange kind of idea when you first start thinking about it, but what's funny is that the more you think about it, the more reasonable it becomes, at least that's that's my view on it, and part of that has to do with the way in which all these ideas kind of start to come together. Once you hear about them and start to think about them, spend some time reflecting on them, you start to realize, oh wow, all of these ideas do actually make sense together, and kind of that in itself is a certain kind of evidence for the view. The other thing I want to say just real quick before we get into Plato's way of presenting this, one of the ways that Plato presents this, which is the allegory of the cave itself, is this idea that, you know, we think that what we see is most real, but actually, you know, whatever we see and whatever we perceive is the object as mediated by the senses, right? So, and, and scientists would agree with that, right? So if I experience an object in reality, what we call reality, I'm actually not experiencing the object itself. I'm experiencing the object as I am capable of experiencing it. So I'm able to experience it with my eyes, my ears, my sense of smell, my sense of touch. I could taste the object. 
And this allows me to interact with the object in a certain way. But I'm actually not interacting with the object as it is in reality. I'm interacting with the object as I'm capable of interacting with my sensory apparatus that I have. So I actually can't get to the object itself. And this is something that's going to come up again in the Renaissance. And we'll talk about this stuff more when we get to the Renaissance. But it does turn out that we have a kind of basic knowledge problem when it comes to the realm of experience. And that's going to be important when we talk about the allegory of the cave in a second. But so that's another kind of source of evidence for this idea that principles of reason, mathematics, logic, and those types of things are going to be more real than objects that we perceive. Even though objects that we perceive in the mundane sense, as we were talking about the tree earlier, seem much more real to us than these things that are just ideas. Let's talk about Plato's allegory of the cave a little bit. So here, I'm just going to read the beginning of book seven here to kind of kick us off a little bit into this idea. Then we'll talk about what I've read. So Socrates says, And now let me show in a figure how far our nature is enlightened or unenlightened. Behold, human beings living in an underground den, which has a mouth open towards the light and reaching all along the den, Here they have been from their childhood and have their legs and necks chained so that they cannot move and can only see before them, being prevented by the chains from turning around their heads. Above and behind them, a fire is blazing at a distance. And between the fire and the prisoners, there is a raised way. And you will see, if you look, a low wall built along the way, like the screen which marionette players have in front of them, over which they show the puppets. The low wall and the moving figures of which the shadows are seen on the opposite wall of the den. And do you see a man passing along the wall, carrying all sorts of vessels and statues and figures of animals made of wood and stone and various materials, which appear over the wall? Some of them are talking, others silent. And then the interlocutor says, you have shown me a strange image, and they are strange prisoners. And then Socrates says, like ourselves. So here we have this very strange idea of prisoners that are chained to seats in a cave and they're facing the cave wall they can't look behind them behind them the fire is burning which is casting light on the wall in front of them and in between the fire and the prisoners there's a kind of raised wall and there are people holding figures above them passing in front of the fire and that is casting a shadow on the wall And that shadow on the wall of the objects that have been carved from various materials is what the prisoners of the cave are able to see in front of them, these shadows, right? Right, and so just wanting to see what you think about this, what do you think is, I mean, obviously the people, we're representative of them. They represent us as an allegory. What do you think the chains represent in this instance? Right, so that's a great question, right? So when we talked about book one, remember Kephlis said that he was bound by a mad and furious master, which was his passions. So I think there's a connection there, right? So I am not able to see clearly. I'm not able to exercise my faculty of reason clearly and effectively because I'm bound by the passions. I'm bound by my ignorance And so these are the things that are the fetters that are binding me, actually, in this situation. And it causes me 
to only have access to the shadows on the cave in front of me. Which you would then perceive to be reality. Right, right. So when we were talking just a moment ago about the tree out in the yard seeming, seeming to be the mo much more real than the Pythagorean theorem or something like that, that, that is actually going to be analogous to the shadows. So the tree for us would be the shadow before the prisoners in the cave right now. This laptop in front of me and the tree out in the yard are going to be the shadows. Right. And then the interesting thing is that these are objects which are carved out of other materials and they're being carried in front of the fire. And those objects themselves are actually not the real thing either. So we actually have like a sort of series of ways in which the prisons are removed from reality, right? So those things are kind of replicas of real things, but they're replicas of real things made out of materials which are different than the actual things themselves. So there are various ways in which my ability to understand the nature of reality is being pretty severely hampered if I'm prisoner in the cave. Well, and I think one thing to point out too is as these animals and statues are, are moving behind these prisoners being projected on that wall, some of them are talking and others are silent. And so you can imagine that not only is it an image of the thing, it's actually kind of animated in a way that it's almost lifelike, right? And that these people in the cave, they're actually trying to make sense of what's going on, which is maybe a reflection of the human condition itself. We make sense of what we're given with, even though that might not actually be what we perceive it to be. Exactly right. So what happens in the cave, right, is that the prisoners are evaluated by the other prisoners based on their ability to make predictions about what shadow is going to come next and the order of the shadows and things of this nature. So in other words, they're basically lauded for their ability to make scientific predictions about the factual stuff of the world, right? So they're able to come up with theories that predict what shadow is going to appear next and how it's going to behave and what shadows follow what other shadows and how these things are organized. And so that stuff would be analogous to something like science, which is a pretty radical idea because now we're saying, look, the stuff that you really think is your access to what's really true is only really access to like what's true in quotation marks, true about the shadows. And yes, you can do well in the human world with that kind of knowledge. Right, and it's still but, empirical in some ways, right? Because it's based on the senses. Right, absolutely. So it's based on what you're seeing. And not only is it based on what you're seeing, but it's also capable of prediction, which is kind of how we assess these theories. And if they're capable of predicting certain things, then we think they're good theories and that they're true. We at least give them kind of a temporary status of provisionally true. So Plato is setting us up for possibly even calling into question the conventional understanding of truth itself. Right, exactly. And I think things like theories about why things are the way they are, when we're basing those theories on an observation of empirical stuff, because he's going to feel like we're pretty far removed from the true stuff, like the first principles, the form of the good, when we engage in that kind of an activity. So what happens next? So interestingly enough, right, in this story, I'll read a couple more things. One thing he says is, to them, the truth would be literally nothing but the shadows of the images. So that would be the truth to people. That would be all they really 
But if you ask them what's true, they say, look at the shadows over there. And this is like, if you ask a kind of lay person, you know, what's real, they're going to say, look, look around you, you know, the grass right here under my feet, this tree, this is what's real. You know, you, you could imagine them easily giving that answer, right? If they haven't been given a religious picture, say, maybe they believe because they were taught or for other reasons that a certain religious picture is true, then they might believe that's most true. But that is a little bit different than just basing it on what makes sense given your surroundings, because now you're asking people to reflect on something subtle like the truth after they've already been educated about the nature of the truth or told something about the nature of the truth. But so what happens next is very interesting. So a person, let's say one of these prisoners is able to get out of their chains and is able to be released and able to get out of their locked position in the chair, facing the wall of the cave, only looking at the shadows. And then what Socrates says here is that at first, when any of them is liberated and compelled, so this is the other thing, right? The person is actually forced out of the chair and kind of jerked out of the chair, unchained by another person, let's say, and forced out of the cave, right? So they're not actually doing it kind of like on their own volition, right? So it says, at first, when any of them is liberated and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn his neck round and walk and look towards the light, he will suffer sharp pains. The glare will distress him, and he will be unable to see the realities of which in his former state he had seen the shadows. Okay, so here we can imagine the person is being forced out of their chair. He's now jerked the person back around towards the fire, not out of the cave, just towards the fire. And then at the point of the fire, he sees these carved things that before he was seeing the shadows of. But when he first sees these carved things, he can't recognize that they're what was producing the shadows because they're actually different enough from the shadows that he's not able to conceive of them. And then he says, and he will be unable to see the realities of which in his former state he had seen the shadows and then conceive someone saying to him, that what he saw before was an illusion, but that now when he is approaching nearer to being and his eye is turned towards more real existence, he has a clearer vision. What will be his reply? So here, right, we can imagine the person would say, of course this isn't real. This is just some crazy stuff you're showing me. It's going to seem like some bizarre, weird delusion or something like that, right? If you see these carved figures and someone says, well, that's what was producing the shadows. That's what you thought was real. He says, and when released they would still persist in maintaining the superior truth of the shadows. And you may further imagine that his instructor, and so that's the person that's forcing him out of his chair, right? It's his instructor, is pointing to the objects as they pass and requiring him to name them. Will he not be perplexed? So here, the person that forced him out of his chair, the instructor, the teacher, is making him look at the objects as they're passing in front of the fire and is asking him or asking her, what is this object? Which is, what is this object now? What's this object now? And before that, you know, only the, the person only knew the shadows. And then he says, will he not be perplexed? Will he not fancy that the shadows, which he formerly saw are truer than the objects, which are now being shown to him far truer. So here we see that this is kind of the beginning of an education where the person is, being shown that there's something deeper to the nature of the reality which you perceive that you can't actually get at just by looking at things. You have to be kind of shown what's behind the curtain, right? You have to be shown what is the actual structure of these things. And we could think about this, you know, it could be something like 
grasping the mathematical nature of physical objects, learning physics or something like that, where now you're learning that there are theories about chemicals, for example, right? We could say there are theories about chemicals and these chemicals produce the world that we experience at this level, but the way in which the chemicals work is radically different from what we experience or something like that. That's not a perfect analogy because we're still dealing with physical things. We're talking about chemicals, but that's based on a mathematical view of things. So it's an analogy to understand an analogy. <laughs> and then after this, right, he says, and if he is compelled to look straight at the light, will he not have a pain in his eyes, which will make him turn away and take refuge in objects of vision, which he can see and which he will conceive to be in reality clearer than the things which are now being shown to him. True, he said. So here, the person wants to take refuge in the familiar, right? And then he drags them further upward, right? He says, when dragged upwards, they'll be dazzled by excess of light. And suppose once more that he is reluctantly dragged up a steep and rugged ascent and held fast until he is forced into the presence of the sun himself. Is he not likely to be pained and irritated? When he approaches the light, his eyes will be dazzled and he will not be able to see anything at all of what are now called realities. So here... Well, the quote-unquote instructor has now dragged this person up a rugged and steep ascent and forced them outside, out of the cave, right? And in the cave, there was an entrance going outside, and that's past the fire. And that entrance going outside has some light being emitted from it, natural light from the sun that is coming in through the entrance. So that is kind of your marker that lets you know you're going in the right direction. First, you have to get past the fire, right? Because the fire is going to be brighter at first. But once you get past the fire, you see the entrance of the cave in the distance and you realize, oh, I have something that's a guide for me towards the actual form of the good. And that's the light being emitted from the form of the good, from the sun, by analogy. And then you get outside and then you don't just see the carved figures made of other materials, right? So when you're actually outside, you don't see a carved tree carved out of stone, say, for example, you see the actual tree, right? And ultimately, you're able to look at the sun, right? And probably you don't want to look at that, the sun too long, but you're going to be able to have your eyes adjusted and be able to look around and enjoy what light can reveal to you. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few things we can take away just to kind of harken back to what we've said before. Number one would be the good pain, right, as we've described in the form of education, or in the form of bettering yourself, as well as that good tends to lead to more good, in the sense of he kind of experiences some of it, right, and then he, he almost gets, even though it's reluctant, he gets curious in a way, and he continues to soak it in, right? We talked about how he was very shocked by seeing that it was only a statue, and he almost stood in disbelief, but then now he's out in the real world, taking in that this is actually how it is and that I was wrong before. So it's kind of breaking through that first barrier to reach the next level. No, that's absolutely right. And so now he's outside, his eyes have gotten used to seeing things and realizes, thinking back to his former life, how sad and how mean in the sense of not amounting to much his life was when he was just looking at the shadows and that's all that he could perceive, right? He, he really thinks about it and thinks, wow, what a pitiful, pitiful life I had there in the cave, just chained to my seat, not really comprehending or understanding things at all. 
I would never trade this world that I'm now experiencing for that world. That would just be something I would never do. And so here, right, it's very interesting because remember the last time when you brought up this question about the Republic and whether or not it's a defense of Socrates's kind of life, really, right? And so this next little part of the allegory of the cave, I think is some real good evidence for that reading of the Republic, that in a sense, it is another kind of second apology defending Socrates' life and the philosopher's life, right? And, and this is kind of going to be how the allegory of the cave finishes here. But so he says, they would then pity their old companions of the den. And when he remembered his old habitation and the wisdom of the den and his fellow prisoners, do you not suppose that he would felicitate himself on the change and pity them? So here he's saying, you know, when he thinks back about his life in the den and the other prisoners in there, he's going to start feeling sorry for them, right? He's going to think, man, these guys are still living this horrible life, chained to their seats, only looking at these shadows, right? Now, remember, we were saying that the prisoners themselves are really habituated to praise people that are able to make predictions about these objects, right? And now, so I'll just read a little part here. He says, and if they were in the habit of conferring honors among themselves on those who were quickest to observe the passing shadows and to remark which of them went before, which followed after, and which were together, and who were therefore best able to draw conclusions as to the future, you think that he would care for such honors and glories or envy the possessors of them? Would he not say with Homer, better to be the poor servant of a poor master and to endure anything rather than think as they do and live after their manner? Right. So here he's saying, look, once you've experienced the light of day, the sun and the actual world, you don't want any part of this, like being able to predict the next future state of the shadows. And it's interesting because he says what came before, what came after, what followed together. And here this is kind of like cause and effect, you know, and two things arising together. And so this sounds like something we hear in early formulations of the scientific method in the Renaissance, where they talk about, you know, a cause coming before another cause or after something, and then whether they come and show up together. These are how we kind of make these causal connections. But so then he goes back into the cave, right? And he wants to help the prisoner. And the problem is that when he goes back into the cave, he's been out in the light. And now it's hard for him to see in the dark cave because he's used to now being out in the sun. And so his eyes are no longer adapted to the light of the cave. And then here he says, and if there were a contest and he had to compete in measuring the shadows with the prisoners who had never moved out of the den while his sight was still weak and before his eyes had become steady and the time which would be needed to acquire this new habit of sight might be very considerable, would he not be ridiculous? Men would say of him that he went up and down he came without his eyes and that it was better not to even think of ascending. And if anyone tried to loose another and lead him up to the light, let them only catch the offender and they would put him to death. So here he goes down to the cave. Now his eyes no longer function as well as they used to because he's back in the cave again. He tries to convince the people, hey, you guys should leave the cave and come follow me. But he's not no longer capable of really impressing them with his abilities in terms of the shadows. And so the people, most likely because when they're is a little bit of a loosening and a little bit of a turning of the head back towards the light of the fire. There's this pain 
which the cowardly philosopher wants to avoid and the courageous philosopher is willing to go towards. When this pain occurs, people don't want to feel that pain and they are going to think that the person who's trying to loose their chains and get them out of their imprisonment, that person is to blame for their pain and so they kill them. And so this goes back to you know what we talked about with martyrdom and this idea of dying for philosophy, dying for the truth, and dying actually out of compassion for others, really, is what it is. That's the argument, right? Just to bring up real quick, do you think that that has any parallel to his former critique on democracy in the sense that you almost have an enlightened, virtuous king that leaves the cave in a way, right? Who has been enlightened, he comes back and is judged by the masses in a wrong way. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so we have this problem. We talked about this just, you know, walking back up from the Piraeus when we talked about book one in our last podcast, where even if the person the rational person has the right answer and has the best course of action and knows what needs to be done. If people can't perceive it or aren't willing to listen to it, they're not going to follow it, right? And this is kind of an interesting thing because throughout history, people that speak the truth, and especially in ways that challenge political configurations of things, like you know Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, those are some modern examples, right? Uh, they are put to death, right? They are put to death. And they're put to death by the other prisoners in the cave. That's who puts them to death, really. And I would argue that, you know, those individuals were actually trying to get people to turn their heads back towards the light and get out of the cave, right? <laughs> you know, that would be my argument there. Obviously, opinions are going to vary on that, but it does seem to be the kind of pattern that seems to be repeated throughout history, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, you can also see that, speaking of history, how many things followed this that tend to draw upon the notion of the good being a form of light, being the way in some ways, right? Um, the way forward that knowledge and good and that light and all those things are connected, thinking particularly of Christianity, right? And other sources. I mean, what do you make of that? No, it's absolutely right. And so, you know, the argument that Plato and friends, including rationalists stand through time, you know, I think are going to make is something like, you know, look, there's a reason why we recognize the true, the good, and the beautiful. And the true, the good, and the beautiful are actually all one thing. And that's the form of the good. I can just read a little part here from just a little bit further down in the allegory of the cave. And here Plato says, Socrates says, Whereas our argument shows that the power and capacity of learning exists in the soul already, and that just as the eye was unable to turn from darkness to light without the whole body, so too the instrument of knowledge can only by the movement of the soul, whole soul, be turned from the world of becoming into that of being, and learn by degrees to endure the sight of being, and of the brightest and best of being, in other words, of the good. So here... Like you said, right, it's the best and brightest and the good, and it involves learning, and it involves gaining more and more wisdom. So this path of gaining wisdom is moving you towards the light, you know, and then we have this idea of enlightenment. We have this idea of the dark ages, right? <laughs> you know? So the idea of the dark ages and the idea of enlightenment is also following this model, right? And it, it makes sense, right, because, you know, with the light of day, as the sun rises, 
you know, we're able to see the landscape again. We're able to make out things clearly again. And when night falls and it's dark, it's hard to make out the landscape and it's hard to know friend from foe and so forth, right? To draw on an overlook part of this too, I just, what do you think is telling of the fact that our eyes have the ability to adjust, right? To me, that seems to be remarkably in our face the entire time we're reading this. And I think it's telling of a few things. No, that's exactly right. So one of the things they talk about later is that, you know, two people appear foolish to the, to the kind of like the average person, right? One person is the person who's gone further down into darkness and now is kind of making a fool of themselves. But then there's this other person who's gone sort of up the path and appears to be a fool to us. And if we think back to our discussion of Aristotle's mean and the idea that the actual courageous person is the person that can tell the difference between the foolhardy person and the coward. The foolhardy person sees both of them as cowardly and the cowardly person sees both of them as foolhardy. So that's kind of like this situation here where if you're just a regular person, a prisoner in the cave, and this person comes and starts talking to you about this other realm and this realm of the forms and all this stuff, you're going to be like, this person's whacked out of their mind. You know, I shouldn't listen to this person. So, I mean, I think that is a relative thing. The other kind of interesting idea is that, you know, Dostoevsky often has this character of the holy fool. And it's sort of like the person's kind of like dumb to try to be a good person or they're, you know, they're kind of like foolish in some sort of a, a way to pursue this spiritual life or something like that. And so that's, that's maybe, you know, in some sense related to that. Very interesting. But I think it's pretty amazing that he puts it in a way whereas our natural disposition in some way is against, it's with the ability to attain knowledge, but looking away from knowledge. And that, you know, when you look at this from the outside, your initial thought is almost like, how can these people be so deluded, right? I found that part interesting to me. Well, absolutely, right? So it, it is interesting because the picture is pitiful and it's not by accident, right? So I think Socrates, Plato here want you to read this and think to yourself, wow, what a pitiful state. You know, it's just a sorry state of existence. And this is analogous, actually, to Buddhism. In Buddhism, they talk about the realm of samsara. We're in the realm of samsara here. And life is suffering, right? So we're in this, like, pitiful state where we aren't seeing things clearly. We aren't experiencing the actual reality. We're experiencing a kind of mundane reality. And we see this here with Socrates, that the realm of experience, the realm of our senses, is not the real realm. And that's a radical proposition. And then you think, you know, you could read this and you could think to yourself, okay, what they're really talking about is kind of like these peasants. And then, you know, along comes the scientist to save the day and unshackles us from our chains and leads us out of the cave. But that's not actually what he's talking about. <laughs> he's not actually saying that, right? So because he's actually saying that the scientists are like the ones that are the most honored among the prisoners, you know, and they're kind of in a sense, in a sense, they're actually more stuck because they're the ones that are actually getting something out of it. Okay, that was a great discussion on the second episode in this three-part series. It was a true philosophical work and a good discussion. The Allegory of the Cave, it gives us both deep insights, but sometimes also deeper questions. 
I think fundamentally, though, one of the big benefits is that it can categorize levels of understanding, which puts our education and our understanding of how education and knowledge actually work, both within the state and within the individual, in an interesting perspective. But it also shows that education is necessary for a just city. It doesn't take long to see how bad things have been in the past where cities have decided not to prioritize education. But we also see that there are basically two worlds, two halves of our understanding. There's the visible realm, and then there's the intelligible realm. And when the prisoner is in the cave, he's within the visible, and when he ascends into daylight, he's in the intelligible. And we'll get more into this in the next episode, but there is a metaphysical principle to pull away from here, and one like we touched on, how the ideas of things can sometimes be more real than the physical reality that we're experiencing, even though that seems counterintuitive to our understanding in the present day. Uh, this structure also illustrates that it's not enough for a philosopher to understand the forms, but the philosopher must also understand the relation of the ideas into these levels that we just spoke about, right? We'll get more into this the next episode, but as the cave dweller was in the cave, that's one level. As they come up to the fire, that's another. As they leave, it's another, and so on. But we can also see how there's this model of constant flux, almost like Heraclitus talked about, right? That objects pass away, even though you know, we sometimes assume that those are the most real things before us, as I've mentioned. And then there's this world of fixed objects, and that's the forms that we started out with. So I just think this is a really interesting episode to not only apply in the sense of education, but also just in the sense of our knowledge, right? As we go on and talk more about the empiricist and the rationalist and how they both view the world as well as our understanding of the world, I think we will come back to this and it will serve as a good reminder as the Greeks who were way ahead of their time broke it down to understand it in their own way. And we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends.